When the president gave his first speech to the joint session of Congress about the health care law, he talked about wanting to actually lower the cost of care. And that was what the whole purpose of the health care legislation was supposed to be about, lowering the cost of care. That's what people were concerned about. Most people felt they were getting the care, they were getting the care they need from a doctor that they choose, uh, but that the cost was, was too high. Uh, and then we had this health care law and this very strange, convoluted system and a one-sided approach which to me has turned out to be bad for patients and bad for the nurses and doctors who take care of them and terrible for taxpayers, and that's what we have. So now the Supreme Court has met, they've uh, made their decision, and uh, the law has been declared constitutional, but just because it's not unconstitutional, it is still unworkable, it is still unpopular, and it is still unaffordable. So you take a look at any piece of legislation, and you say, you know, the number one thing when you're going to vote on something, is it constitutional? Then number two is, is it a good idea? And number three is, can we afford it? And even though it may now pass the constitutional muster test, it is clearly not something that, uh, that is a good idea in terms of how it's going to work, and it is not something that we as a nation can afford. You know, James Madison said, pass no laws so, uh, so voluminous they cannot be read, so uh, incoherent they cannot be understood. But that's what we have in this health care law which is why when they passed it, I said I'm going to go to the Senate floor every week with a doctor's second opinion about, about the health care law and continue to do it. And did it as of yesterday. I did a doctor's second opinion about a health care law that now that the, the Supreme Court has said it is a tax, it is a constitutional based on the taxing power of government. And, and a poll out today says a majority of Americans say, yes, it is a tax. That, uh, you know, this is a law that has more IRS agents uh, to, to look into your life, then it actually provides for doctors and nurses to care for you. And that's not what people want, which is why it continues to be very unpopular. You know, they say this election is going to be about the economy. Well, this is absolutely linked to the economy. The Gallup did a poll right after the, uh, the Supreme Court ruling, July 2nd and 3rd. They said, uh, uh, do you think that the 2010 health care law upheld by the Supreme Court last week will help or hurt the national economy. 37% think it will help the economy. 46% say it will hurt the economy. And then if you go to the independents, because they break it out, uh, of independents, actually fewer independents think it will help. Only 34%, like one in three independents think it will help the economy. 47% think it will hurt the economy. So if this is election, election talking about uh, the economy, clearly there's a relationship between this health care law and the economy, and people are still not going to like this, this health care law. And, and I'm glad Bill's here to talk specifically about Medicaid, because he has a, a wonderful uh, piece of legislation dealing with Medicaid, the program for, for, um, for low-income uh, Americans. But what we know is, with Medicaid, um, and, and Bill, you read, uh, Jim, you read uh, one of Bill's quotes about it, the president doesn't seem to see the difference between coverage and care. He uses those words interchangeably when it's not interchangeable. There is a huge difference between somebody getting a Medicaid card or even a Medicare card and getting actual care. And for those of you who are, you know, parents on Medicare, some of us who are approaching Medicare age, the program for seniors, <coughs> it is going to be much tougher for seniors <coughs> to get to see a doctor when they are on Medicare. The, uh, and, and your doctor's not likely going to fire you, but if that doctor retires, it's going to be harder for that senior to find another doctor who will take them. 
it is going to be harder if, as we see families moving. I talked to a man yesterday who's on Medicare moving to be closer to the grandkids. Um, and is he going to be able, and his wife going to be able to find a doctor in their new location under Medicare when, uh, under the health care law, we know that it takes $500 billion away from our seniors on Medicare, not to help Medicare, but to start this whole program for somebody else. And it's fascinating when uh, Bill and I and Leonard are in debates with uh, some of our colleagues on the other side of the aisle, and they say, well, we've helped close the donut hole, and 5 million Americans have gotten $6,600 each they saved on their drug costs. That's right. Do the math. That's $3 billion. But they're taking $500 billion from our seniors on Medicare, and they say, well, we gave them $3 billion. That's the popular part of the program. The others, they say, hey, kids under 26 can stay on their parents' plans. i got three kids under 26. I think it's a good idea for children at that age to stay under their, under their parents' plans. But you know what the president says? And it's free? It's not free. There is a cost to that. And insurance companies said, yeah, we can cover them. But, you know, premiums will go up a commensurate amount because of, of that. So, so there's a lot of uh, I don't know, exaggeration, broken promises, uh, disinformation coming out of the other side. That actually, I don't think this is actually going to be a good law for to help actual patients and the people that take care of them. And that's why I continue to go back with a second opinion. You mentioned uh, even the, the kids on in programs on uh, in college programs. The most astonishing thing, and I'll, the most astonishing thing was right after the Supreme Court ruled, the president went to the microphone, you know, said this was upheld, and then once again said, if you like what you have, you can keep it. Either he is delusional or confused or is being kept in the dark about these things. Millions and millions of people have lost the coverage that they have, even if they like it. And the incentives built into this program are for many, many people to be dumped off of their the insurance that they get through work. And one of the first examples is even for students in college who buy a college plan that a lot of students do. I mean, hundreds of thousands of students get a, an insurance program through their colleges every year. Um, pretty low cost, sometimes you know, less than $1,000, because they only need it from the first of the school year to the end of the school year. You're talking about a group that are pretty healthy, unlikely that they're going to you know, develop diabetes, high blood pressure, heart have a heart attack, develop cancer during it's a cheap insurance policy to have. But under the president's health care law, all of the things that you have to buy, they didn't have to be incorporated with lifetime benefits and, 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 and no caps on anything, they can't sell those kind of policies that all these students have gotten in the past. So a lot of colleges who have now priced out the insurance under the mandate, under the what level of coverage you have to have, have said, we can't sell this stuff to students. My gosh, some places it's going up four uh, four times, other places ten times, the colleges have just said, we're not going to even offer it for sale because it's going to look like we, the colleges, are trying to make a profit on this. But it's because of the demands of the health care law. So on item after item, the more people hear about and learn about the health care law, the, the less they like it. Uh, the component of the, about the 26-year-olds, it is 47 words of a 2,700-page bill. It is less than one-third of one page of the health care law. Uh, we could have passed that the day of the roundtable discussion at the White House two years ago. There was a pro, there was, you know, bipartisan support, and that's the best the Democrats can say that they have done. There's a lot of bad things in this health care law. Uh, I don't want to repeat all of them. We could spend all day uh, talking about them. Uh, I just want to tell you that I've you know, talked about why I was 
Wyoming's doctors because I've done television health reports for about 20 years. Uh, and, in the, uh, and it's all about giving people information to stay healthy. You know, we know what works. We know that we have a nation where we're continuing to be overweight, people continue to smoke, continue to do things that, uh, you know, all the medicine in the world is being developed and money is being spent. Uh, but, you know, you take people, give incentives for people to stay healthy, it works a lot better than a lot of the medications that are out there. So, at the end of each of these television reports, I tell you, here in Wyoming, I'm Dr. John Barrasso, helping you care for yourself. <coughs> Because that's the whole idea, is giving people information they can use to help them care for themselves, stay healthy, get down the cost of their care. And that's where the, we should have been focused. And the president got so fixated on coverage, I think it's going to bankrupt the country. I told the president that to his face at a meeting with uh, Republicans over a year ago. Uh, he was very upset, but, uh, but I still believe it's true <coughs> today. This is a health care law uh, that this country cannot afford, and it's not actually going to improve the health of the American citizens. So I'm going to continue to work to repeal it and replace it with patient-centered reforms that will actually help people get the care that they need from the doctor that they choose at lower cost. So thanks for letting me be with you today. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, John. Thank you all for inviting me. Let me first clear some things up. It's my wife who's the surgeon. She's the breast cancer surgeon. I'm a gastroenterologist. My laugh line is, is that gastroenterology prepared me very well for Washington, D.C. You know, <laughs> took off the scrubs, put on a suit, but sometimes the view seems the same. Um, that's it. <laughs> if, if what we're talking about today is Supreme Court aftershocks, I would say that Medicaid is the first shock felt. Because really, the only thing that changed in that decision was Medicaid. That's the only thing, in terms of the medical practice, the only thing that changed was Medicaid. And if you think about it, it changed in a way which already we're seeing tectonic plates shift to pursue the metaphor. There's five or six states that have said they will not take the Medicaid expansion. Another five or six said they're on the fence. 26 or 27 have not decided. Now, if the goal of health care reform, in terms of access, is for those who are poorest, the linchpin has just been pulled. Isn't it ironic? When we started this, 3,000 pages of legislation ago, those are the folks who are most vulnerable, and yet those are the ones who are still most vulnerable. So, that's said, I will also say that whether there's a President Romney or a President Obama, Medicaid shall be reformed. Why do I say that? First, we know that Simpson-Bowles said that health care entitlements, specifically Medicare and Medicaid, are driving our nation's indebtedness. <coughs> One, we all know Admiral Mullen's quote that our nation's indebtedness is our greatest threat to our national security. Ergo, Medicare and Medicaid unreformed are our greatest threat to our national security. Now, it isn't just our nation's security we must be concerned about. States, for the first time, are spending more on Medicaid than they are on education. Now, that's a recipe for future disaster, isn't it? So think about it. In 1964, Medicaid was about that much of a state's budget. Now, it is the largest line item. <clears throat> And, depending upon your state, projected to grow immensely. I saw a statistic yesterday 
Florida before reform, they've done some reforms in Florida, estimated that 59% of their budget would have been going to Medicaid. New York has similar numbers if we don't reform this. When I walked in, Jim said, we are Republicans. We should be challenged now to have ideas if we're going to repeal, what do we replace? I agree with that. You are a place in which ideas ferment, so let me toss out an idea to you. Um, MAC Act, Medicaid Accountability and Care Act. Uh, I joke about being a gastroenterologist and that preparing me for DC, but truly it prepared me for this. So for 20 years I've been working in a safety net hospital, and I observed that whenever Medicaid was expanded, the lines in my safety net hospital got longer. It's counterintuitive. Medicaid is insurance. If you have insurance, you should be able to go to see whoever you wish. But instead, my lines in the hospital for the uninsured grew longer. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Washington passes down an expansion. The state has this much money. It can either further cannibalize education or roads or prisons or you name it, or it can take the same amount of dollars it's always had and spread them more thinly. So you end up paying providers less than their cost of seeing patients. California Medicaid now pays $12 for a Medicaid dental visit. $12. You cannot <coughs> turn on the light switch in that cap and trade state without spending $12. <laughs> so clearly, we are now at a point where there's the, what I call the cross of death. Uh, the cross of death is where your reimbursement falls so much below a provider's cost of providing care that it is death to access. Hence, what Jim quoted, it is Medicaid is the illusion of access without the power of care. A paraphrase of St. Paul that he wrote. So what would I offer in return? Well, in our MAC Act, this is what, by the way, I meant to put on my timer, I forgot to put on my timer, I was so caught up in gastroenterology. So if I'm running late on 12 minutes, Courtney, give me the hook. Um, so it's a 40-page piece of legislation, but truly I think it uh, brings in needed reforms. By the way, it's parentage is bipartisan. Phil Graham, Rick Santorum in the early 90s promoted what was then called the per capita cap, Bill Clinton promoted the same thing. Bipartisan parentage, if you will. So, uh, per capita cap. What we say is Medicaid actually serves four distinct populations. It serves, in, in medicine it's called your case mix. It has the long-term care for the over 65 elderly, the blind and disabled, pediatric population, and adults. In most states that's principally pregnant women. Now the cost basis for this is wildly different say 1250 per annum for a child, 2500 for a pregnant woman, maybe 15, 16,000 up to 50,000 for a long-term care and even more expensive for blind and disabled. Now if 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 you just want to treat I, block grants better than the status quo, but how many block grant proposals are is that this is what you've historically gotten and this is what you shall historically get, uh, prospectively get with a certain inflator. But think about it. Florida Pennsylvania, Vermont are old states. Utah is a very young state. So if you said we're going to give every state a certain amount per Medicaid recipient, if you're one of these states with an obligation to your elderly, you're sucking wind. If you're one of these states with a very young population, wow, 
man, let's take a vacation um, because you're going to be making so much money because your cost basis is so low. No insurance company would run their insurance company that way. So what we do is we first say there's four separate populations, okay? And there is a cost basis for each. Now this cost basis shouldn't be driven by state politics, which provider lobbies the state legislature better. It should have some sort of accountability. So let's take a long-term care. Let's take long-term care. There's 51 jurisdictions, including the District of Columbia. Now, you can adjust for geographic cost of living. Manhattan, more expensive than Manhattan, Kansas, for geographic medical cost of living, if you will. And you can case mix, you can risk adjust for comorbidities. But over time, the first, one thing our bill does after dividing into four, within each category, it says, really, everybody should move to a corridor where compared to your peers and adjusted for certain other factors, every state is within 10% uh, of a mean. Okay? Now, why do I say that? Bob Moffat at Heritage Foundation wrote an article, and he, and he points out, uh, I'm quoting his article almost verbatim, that in New York, a Medicaid recipient receives 7,500 federal dollars, and in Mississippi, 2,500 federal dollars. Wait, there's a three times difference in the federal support for a poor person depending only upon where you live. Now there's nuances to that. But suffice it to say, for the most basic thing, there can be treble differences depending upon where you live. Now as a guy who's been taking care of uninsured patients for the last 20-something years, I find it immoral that how a state gains the system dictates our federal support for those who are most vulnerable. I think this is truly a moral argument. This society was formed on the morality of civil rights. I consider this a similar moral issue. And the way we address it is that within each of these categories, we move down to a mean, plus or minus 10%, and each is a, accountable to its peers. So if we have an outlier for pediatric expenditures that's way up here, and the mean is down here, then really, why should this be an outlier unless their outcomes are better? And so we just move this down to equalize treatment. Secondly, we do it per capita, meaning that, okay, um, we have 100 people in this category, 10 in that, and 50 in this. We will pay you for each number that you have in that category. If you have an old state like Florida, Pennsylvania, Vermont, you will get paid more for that category. A young state, as I mentioned for Utah, you get paid for that category. But you don't mix categories. By the way, that makes Medicaid counter-cyclical. You want your safety net program to give the states more money when there is an economic downturn. So, if your enrollment goes up 5 to 10% because of the Great Recession, and you're on a per capita cap, the federal government will pay you more per capita. We just put 5% more in the pediatric population, we will pay you on a per capita basis. Inherently, that is counter-cyclical with greater federal support for the states when they are more, uh, um, when they are more uh, strapped. Next, uh, and I've got, so, so somebody truly watched the clock. Let me see what time it is, because I've got nine reforms in here and I won't go through them all. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me just say one more thing. Medicaid, and then, I'll, then we'll stop. Medicaid has a big problem of quality. There's an article out of University of Virginia, uh, peer-reviewed meta-analysis that found that Medicaid patients, inpatients, do worse in terms of quality outcomes than private insurance, 
Medicare, and even the uninsured. Wow, Medicaid does worse than the uninsured? How could that be? I think about that, and I wonder if that may be because of what are called dual eligibles. People who are on both Medicare and Medicaid. As it turns out, Medicare will pay for this, and Medicaid will pay for that. But they don't coordinate. In fact, they disaggregate. And not only do they disaggregate payment, but they disaggregate care, and quality outcomes are worse. Now, this is incredibly important. Uh, Medicaid dual eligibles are 15% of the Medicaid population, but almost 40% of Medicaid spending. They're 20% of the Medicare population, but 31% of the Medicare spending. So they disproportionately take resources, in part because quality is so poor. High re higher readmission rate, higher complication rate. I can go on, but again, you're the Repugnant Society, a place of intellectual firm. I do think that we need to have a response not only to repeal, but with which to replace. I would argue Medicaid must be reformed whether we replace or not. And I think the MAC Act is the way to go. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Come on up and uh, Jimmy Bolin, you are the introducer. You have the first question, or you can pass to Steve Hart. <laughs> well, I'll preempt Steve uh, and ask our, both our panelists how the Ripon Society and the people of this room and the private sector can help the two of you and our, our your colleagues improve the quality of the healthcare debate. I think that um, you guys understand the crowd out that is occurring in both federal and state budgets uh, because of health care entitlements. Uh, so when I have folks come back home saying, well, man, we need to fix the levies because they're threatening to break, and i got to say, listen, there is a crowd out of money for the Army Corps of Engineers. Now pick your department. You know that. That has to be a message. When someone says, listen, Social Security and Medicare are working well for me, I'm saying yes, but it doesn't work well for that highway transportation fund that you're bumping down the road complaining about the roads. So I think there has to be an understanding in our body politic as well as our civic conversation, exactly what Simpson, Bowles, and Admiral Mullen suggested, that if we don't fix healthcare entitlements, our nation will, uh, we have an existential crisis created by these, by these, and you can do that. And I think you want to you know, share honestly with the people that, that, and the corporations I was visiting with a corporate chief yesterday. He said, look, I want to keep our people on our insurance plan. It's good. It works well. But if my competitor dumps people onto the exchange, pays the penalty, because the incentives and the consequences are such that it's in financial best interest to dump onto the exchange uh, and pay the penalty, that we as, a, we as that as competitor are going to have to do the same just to, just to be able to be competitive because financially, we're then at a disadvantage if we do what we think is right for our employees by keeping them on board. We're not going to be able to compete with a guy that dumps. So I think that the, to try to just get the word out that, the, that uh, this thing has to be really repealed and replaced. Um, of the different sectors we were talking about in Medicaid, we argue that the one, uh, certainly the disabled side, you all are looking at it only from a management of cost, not a management of revenue. When we did Social Security reform, 
we looked and saw the power of certain groups to actually earn money and bring tax revenue into the government. Under the disabled community, the idea of putting somebody who has a hearing impairment with mental retardation, because that's what the government does, it lumps everybody together, and the restrictions putting on the disabled and their ability to earn money and become self-sufficient and pay taxes, to me, you're, you're looking away from an opportunity to make money for the government by getting rid of those restrictions and not classifying all the disabled in one single lump category. Now, now wait a second. I'm going to immediately push back. Okay. Uh, that was reform number uh, eight. <laughs> I will point out that um, the way I look at medic the way I look at any insurance program, if you will, is that there is financing, administration, and then there's patient care. Okay. We are strictly financing. I am agnostic as to what states do. Uh, you can be a single payer like Vermont, or you can be a managed care like Florida, or you can be an HSA like Indiana. Okay, so first, financing. Yours really is more on the administration side. We will have a companion Medicaid bill that we will work through with the Republican Governors Association in which we give them the latitude to do some of the stuff which Gary Alexander, now from Pennsylvania, formerly from Rhode Island, has done in Rhode Island, where they combine the uh, safety net entitlements, if you will, to address exactly what you speak of, that someone doesn't is not discouraged from seeking a job because thereby they lose their disability payments. We are about safety net and compassion, and I see the greater compassion as, as allowing someone who can work to work, not leaving them on the door innervated by dependence for the rest of their life. So I would say that you on reform number eight, but believe me, that's where our thinking is going. There's a $2,000 cap for anybody who's disabled in their savings account. They're not allowed to have more $2,000 in their account, they lose all benefits. Isn't that incredible? We have one last question for the Senator, because Jay said, please, he has got to go. So any other questions for the Senator? Right over here, go ahead. Uh, Pre-existing condition, that seems to be a big issue the Democrats are milking. Uh, what, how should the Republicans respond rhetorically and with policy? Yeah. And, and when I think of people with pre-existing conditions, are three different. To me, there's three different categories. So they just kind of lump it all together. Uh, there is my wife Bobby, who is a breast cancer survivor, has been through three operations, has had chemotherapy twice, lost her hair twice, and has higher risk potentially of a recurrence. Cancer's been 10 years cancer-free. She still needs to get insurance for this pre-existing condition, which may come back, but she needs insurance overall because other things might happen. So, so that's kind of one type of pre-existing condition. We need to make sure all of those people can get insurance. Then there's the pre-existing condition of somebody who's diabetic, on insulin, so their costs every day are actually higher, as opposed to my wife's costs who aren't any higher because she's not having ongoing costs. But the diabetic who's checking themselves, taking their insulin, that's a different, that's another pre-existing condition. We have to make sure that is, is handled as well. You know, states in Wyoming, we had a high-risk pool, worked very well. Subsidies come into that. They pay a higher rate for insurance, but it's also subsidized so that it, it works. And then the third type that the, that the president talks about under his guaranteed access is the pre-existing condition that it's the guy who's on his motorcycle at 2 in the morning, you know, hits a tree, 
breaks his leg, the, the bone's sticking out, and if he can get an insurance guy on the phone on the way to the hospital, they have to, with guaranteed issuance, sell him insurance on the way to the hospital. That is not insurance. And, and to me, I don't think that, you know, that they lump that all together, and it is very different groups. It's, it's a well-tested soundbite for the Democrats, uh, but, the, but the reality is that's not insurance, and that's where this, this whole thing uh, breaks down, where they talk about people that, that aren't, uh, you know, that aren't participating fully in, in the process. So you know, I think it's, there are ways to take care of each of the three different groups, but to just say that somebody that's had breast cancer 10 years ago is lumped in to the person who has just wrecked their motorcycle and is being taken to the hospital is not, is not a fair way to, to really present. Are state pools sufficient to deal with a solution? Lindsey Graham and I have a state health care choice act to let states make all these decisions on the mandates, on the level of insurance they have to buy, on how to do, deal with Medicare to give each state flexibility and choice. I was in the state legislature in Wyoming for five years. We knew that the amount of money we were spending on Medicaid, if we could just do it ourselves in the way that worked for our state, um, we could actually give everybody a Blue Cross Blue Shield card and lower the co cut the cost in half. People would get better coverage need better care um, without all this government intervention. So, yeah, I think the states do a much better job than Washington on any of these, any of these big things. Anyway, thanks so much for letting me be with you today. clarify my feelings about this. When we speak of politics, it sometimes presupposes or presumes that people will sacrifice good public policy for the interest of politics. I actually think that for most of these states, sacrificing the, um, the how it's currently structured, the Medicaid expansion, is both good public policy and good politics. Let me explain. Right now, as we all know, under the Affordable Care Act, the, um, by the way, I'm going to have a white paper on pre-existing conditions pretty soon. So if you all invite me back, I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's it, that Jim. That's a, but, but anyway, biting my tongue. What are you doing in October? That's good. I felt a little bit like chopped liver on that one. That's OK. <laughs> so, so let me just kind of, y'all are a smart group of people. Even, you know, you're not in medicine, but you're a smart group of people. So thank you for this. Under the Affordable Care Act, the Unaffordable Care Act, uh, <laughs> Medicaid has expanded to 133% of federal poverty level. And the federal government will pay 100% of newly eligible. Okay. And for a few years. For a few years. And then 50%, et cetera. Now, in Louisiana, we're a poor state, one of the highest poverty rates in the nation. 20% of our population is already on Medicaid. And we have what are called categorically ineligible. The adults that are on it are either in long-term care, blind and disabled, or they are pregnant women. A couple of exceptions, but by and large, if you're me, 
if you're a 54 year old guy who's got some osteoarthritis and a couple of things I shouldn't talk about in mixed company, then really you're not going to be on Medicaid. Um, in our state, there are people who are currently eligible below 133% or below 100%, but who are not enrolled. Uh, and for our state to enroll those folks will cost our state $650 million over the next five years. So all this free money has a price tag of $650 million over the next five years. Not unique to Louisiana. This ACA expansion will cost states $100 billion over the next 10 years. That's what it's going to cost states for this so-called free expansion. I mentioned earlier, for the first time, Medicaid expenditures are exceeding that for education expenditures. Read any budget. New York, California, Texas, Louisiana, go down the list, their state budgets are fighting over Medicaid gaps in funding. Now wait a second, it's free money, but I gotta come up with 650 million more when already I'm closing down in Louisiana two prisons, trying to close universities, and for the first time have decreased funding to education, and the free money is supposed to like take care of this? Our state cannot afford the free money. Now there, there is a contrast. Some of the blue states have, uh, uh, have eligibility that are much more generous. They're richer, they have a smaller population to insure, and so they have a higher FPL. They could actually, at some point, move down to 133%, enroll those that are currently on Medicaid into the exchanges, and they will save money. So if you're a state which can move down, enroll in exchanges, and save money, you're going to be saying the Affordable Care Act, greatest thing since President Obama's election. If you are a state which has to move up, which already can't afford, you're going to be saying, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing since President Obama's re-election. <laughs> and it really is a perspective of a rich state versus a poor state. Anyone else? Chris Pan. Um, I just uh, thank, thank you for your uh, work on this whole area. It just is terrific. Um, I wanted to just role of technology in providing incentives to uh, individual patients to, to uh, live better or healthier uh, can save a lot of money. I just want to suggest one example. Um, a friend of our family's, uh, Dr. Randy Williams, he's a cardiologist out of Johns Hopkins. When he opened his practice in Chicago many years ago, he was the first, what I would call, truly manage care doctor, not managing costs, but managing patient's overall care, you know, and, and for his target group. And he took that concept and started a company called Paris Innovations. And basically, it's pretty cheap, $50 a month, the patients report in daily by internet or telephone um, using simple diagnostics at home on, you know, whatever they're supposed to test. And if, this, if the, they don't report in by noon, the system calls them back and says this is Dr. Smith's office and you know you haven't reported in, et cetera. What it did is, is it, it basically um, allowed the doctors who were treating physicians to focus in on 10% or so of the patients who are outside the boundaries. And, but in addition, they, it's the statistics as compliance are, are unbelievable. Their average age, I think, is 72. The compliance rate was 92%, and it's diet, exercise, and drug therapy. And 
we calculated out many years ago when he was starting all this. It, at that time, we could potentially save Medicare maybe $4 billion a year. Now it would be, I haven't calculated it recently. But I, I just, they did a pilot program down in South Carolina in the Medicaid population, which is a pretty poor population, pretty illiterate, et cetera. They had terrific compliance rates. It was just, it's sort of the concept of Weight Watchers. You know, you have to check in all the time, so, you know, therefore, you know, you're, you're probably going to be more uh, careful about adhering to the program. But it's got tremendous potential. So the thing I like, first, let me say, by the way, you complimented me, let me compliment my staff. As you know, staff does a heck of a lot of work, and my staff has been fantastic. Two of them are here. And I will just share credit, because I do think we have a good bill. But that said, one of the good things about our bill is that it's a per capita cap. We give the money to the states, reform number six I didn't get to, is that if they, if they bring it under cost, they keep the money. Currently, if a state brings in something under cost, they give a portion back to the federal government. Well, there's not as much incentive to save money if you've got to give it back to the federal government. In our reform, we say, states, this is your money. It's zero sum, it's two-sided risk, you got it, you save it, you win. Now, that's when you start seeing those sorts of innovations. Somebody in Mississippi or Louisiana says, wow, South Carolina has this thing which improves compliance among Medicaid patients pregnant woman more likely to take her prenatal um, vitamins if every day she gets a text, as an example. Let's bring that in because we know the cost of text messages is far less than the cost of a spina bifida baby because she did not take her cold. Now that, I think, not that states wouldn't do that anyway, but I do find in life that if you align things financially, it sharpens a person's mind. And in this case, I think that financial alignment will lead to that sort of innovation that sort of uh, better health outcome as well. Oh, uh, one more question. One more question. Well, thank you. I look back. I look forward to my return visit in October. <laughs>